Today we are continuing our, our series, and we're now in the second part of the book of Ephesians. If you are new and you're just touching base, hopefully today will work as a standalone sermon for you, but I do encourage you to look on our website and to catch up with the series as we've been going through it. Part one in the first three chapters, we were particularly looking at what we've called the transformed life. And that's what God has done, in short. It's how God has saved us, how God has redeemed us, how God gives us a sense of purpose and how God gives us identity. It's all about what He's done. And then in chapter four, you start to look at transformed life. In view of what God has done in you, the fruit the natural, but also to be pursued and to also to be taken hold of, transform life. So we start talking about the things that we do in response and as a result of, but also the things that we lay hold of because of what God has done. There's a book written by someone called Watchman Nee through in Ephesians, and he talks about sit, walk, stand. And that's quite great. In the first bit of Ephesians, you just sit in what God's done, and you get secure in that and you enjoy it. And then you start walking out this life. As we heard from Tom last week, walk worthy of the calling you've received. And so this next few weeks are about walking. And then right at the end where it talks about spiritual uh, warfare and armor, you just stand. You keep standing in this truth. I think that's a lovely way to put it. So today we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. Let's read. I'll read. You can follow along in either in your Bibles or up on the, the screen. And it says this in verse Seven, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. Brackets, verse nine. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for some of the wonders we've been singing about of how good it is to be loved by you, of the security we have before the Father because of you, Lord Jesus. And as we come to your word now, we thank you. These are not mere ideas. Lord, these are the words of truth and revelation. And we posture our hearts to receive them by faith that we may reap a harvest from them, that they may be fruitful in our, our lives. So I pray, yes, fill our minds with knowledge, but we ask for revelation and discernment right in our hearts, Lord, that we could live more fruitful and honoring and therefore fullness of life lives. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. So these verses unpack for us what I think is a vision of church life that is vibrant it's varied in its activities, and it's full of life. There's a lot going on in a church, the body of Christ, that reflects these verses. These verses encourage leadership, and they call for everyone 
to take initiative and to take responsibility and to play their part in church life. And it's a, it's a vision of church life that is actually going somewhere. Hallelujah. Churches and church bodies are actually going somewhere. And part of that going somewhere is filling everywhere with the knowledge and the glory of God. I'll unpack some of these verses as we go. And so if you're not a believer and you're visiting church today or you kind of feel on the periphery of church life or whatever it might be, this is an invitation into a kind of vibrant church life that maybe you've not seen before. Or actually, it's a picture very different from what so many people think of when they think of church. I wonder if you ask your friends, what do you think church is like? I wonder what they might say. <laughs> they might come up with a bunch of descriptions that are more cultural ideas of what church is like rather than biblical, which is, would be their only frame of reference. But just think for a moment, what would your friends describe church like if you asked them and they've never really been to church? Or only church they've been to would be examples of services they've seen on TV of quite high church or whatever it might be. This, for many people's perceptions, is very different to what they think of as church. It's a far cry, isn't it, from mere religious observance or church attending. <laughs> Do you attend church? No, we are the church, and we, we go, and we're part of something that God's doing. And it saves us, these verses, if we let them, from nominal Christian niceness. Can you say nice? nice. With each other to deep, robust, purposeful relationships and partnerships in, in mission to the glory of God it's a glorious church. Can you say glorious church? Unpacked here. This is the kind of idea of church that gripped me when I was a 16-year-old. My parents are not Christians at all. Until I was 16, I was going to be, forgive me, those who don't know, a hunter. That was my dream and my vision. My dad was a, a safari man. Um, and that's what I wanted to be. And um, I got saved and I knew Jesus, but that was still what I wanted to be. That excited me as a young man growing up in the world that I, the world that I did. And then I heard someone start to preach about the church and about the wonder of what Jesus has in store for the church. And I can't quantify, but back then when I was 16, I knew this is what I wanted to give my life to, in one way, shape, or the other. It was a beautiful picture of the church. It was exciting, and I think these verses are some of that. And we're going to look at these verses in two main parts. The first is we're going to look at the aim, okay? We're going to look at the bits of the verse that reflect what is going on here, and where is it heading? What is the purpose that Paul is trying to get to for these verses? And then we're going to look at the activity that makes these verses happen. How does that actually get there? So first, the aim of these verses, I think you could say, is that it's growing up into maturity. Turn to the person next to you and say, grow up. <laughs> Some of you are not quite sure how to do that. <laughs> and, uh, I, hope you did it with a, I hope you did it with a smile. I hope you didn't take the opportunity to... Um, Speak to your spouse after a stormy morning or a housemate or, or something like that. Um, the aim of these verses is that we would all, together but individually playing our parts, grow up into maturity. Can you say maturity? maturity? I don't know what comes to mind when you think about maturity. Just have a thought for a moment. When you think maturity, what is it that you think about? When we talk about the purpose and the goal of growing into maturity, we, we see that in these verses, don't we? Some of the verses. Verse 12 so that the body of Christ may be built up. Can you say built up? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we, the purpose of all of what we're going to see, the activity, is that we would be built up and that we would reach something. 
that we would become mature. And this maturity, what does it look like? Well, it's not simply appearance or adherence to mature social norms. That's not what we're talking about. It might be part of it. It's not maturity in terms of acceptable behavior or carrying responsibility, things that we might associate with maturity. Some of those things are good. Maturity here looks like the fullness of Christ. It's divine knowledge. The knowledge of Christ in these verses is epignosis, which means a a specific kind of knowledge that just comes partly from information, but from revelation, from a sense of encounter. It's to become mature, fully knowing Jesus, and therefore becoming fully like him. It's divine knowledge. And the church and the body of Christ across the world is to grow up to become mature. In contrast to saying infants, say infants. I'm getting you to repeat this so you can't doze off in the heat, okay? Did you see how many more people were raising their arms in worship? Not because they normally raise arms, but to get a bit of airflow. Did anyone notice that? Yeah? Or was it just me? Now you're looking at me differently. But the contrast of the aim here, maturity, is contrasted with immaturity. It's contrasted with infancy. Verse 14, then when we as individuals and as a body mature, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunningness and the craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Maturity is contrasted here with being flimsy, weightless, easily swayed, tossed this way and that by the loudest voice on YouTube or whatever it is you watch or listen to, or the latest trend, or the likes and wants of society that shouts individualism and self-expression and true emancipation. The world we live in shouts that. To be truly free and to truly express it's about you. The world says we're more free than we've ever been, but increasingly studies show that younger generations are more unstable, more troubled, more anxious, more stressed, more unsettled, and less resilient than previous generations when actually there was a collective sense of identity and I do what's good for the collective. We live in a world now that says I do what's good for me and the collective comes down the road, but the fruit of that is showing itself to be not so great. And so here you have this maturity contrasted with this tossing to and fro, no stability, no conviction, just lacking, lacking any sense of unsettled, I know who God is. I know what's going on in the world. There's a a maturity that God invites us into. John Stott um, says this in his commentary, such are immature Christians. They never seem to know their own mind or come to settled convictions. Instead, their opinions tend to be those of the last preacher they heard or the latest book that they read, and they fall easy prey to each new theological fad. So when we talk about this sense of maturity... It's actually an invitation, isn't it, I think? It's an invitation from God to say, hey, listen, I want you to, to grow up. I mean, have you, apart from medical reasons, if you like, when you meet someone who really should be grown up, but at the age of whatever it might be, and I'm going to try not to mention stereotypes of what a middle-aged man who's not grown up might look like, it's, it just feels wrong, doesn't it? When you, when you meet someone and they've clearly not matured or been parented or fathered or mothered in a way that's just, it's rounded them. There's an immaturity to their way of thinking, their way of processing. That's not suitable for someone who should have grown up. 
And it's just a bit messy, isn't it? And you think, I'm not sure what's going on or where you're going or whether you know what you are, what you are doing. But this is an invitation to grow up. Verse 15 says, instead of this infant tossing to and fro, lack of stability, instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And you look at the rest of some of the other expressions of Paul's ministry in the Bible, and Paul says this in Colossians 1.20, this is what he breathed, not big church, if you like, and this would be our aim as elders in the church, as pastors. Paul says this, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, speaking the truth in love, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the goal of preaching, of ministry, of eldering? It's to present you mature in Christ. It's not to make you feel good about yourself, right? But if I preach Christ, you're going to be more secure. And you'll be able it, it, It's not for you to look successful or for our church to have a great name. That, or may God give us some of these things that are neither good nor bad. It's to present you mature in Christ, which is why you will be hopefully encouraged in the church but also challenged at times, speaking the truth in love. Because niceness is not what we're after. Maturity, vibrance, robust, life-giving maturity is what we're called to. In Galatians 4, Paul says, My little children, this is the heart of a spiritual father, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. I don't think he'd get away with writing that these days. It would be not PC for him to say he's in the anguish of, of childbirth, because clearly he hasn't been through that. Until Christ is formed in you. There's something about him that is giving birth to the life of Christ in you. And it takes toil. And it takes time. And there are probably tears. And there's amazing joy. And there's amazing fruit in life. But this is what, as Christians, we're doing to each other. We're helping each other be formed into Christ-like maturity, Paul longed for, he yearned for, and worked towards presenting everyone mature in Christ. I wonder if you've thought about your life like that. For whatever length of life God's given you, do, my aim is to be presented as mature as I can to Christ. Have you ever thought of that in your life? Now, part of that is obviously using our talents that God gives us well. It's dealing with our character issues. and that. But, but you think, I wonder if that kind of framework... When I meet Christ, I want to be presented mature in Christ-likeness, more and more, never fully attaining it <laughs> until we come to glory, but moving towards it. If that is your aim, you invite people to speak into your life. You don't isolate yourself. If that is your aim, you, you get in the word of God so that you have an anchor of truth, not tossed to and fro. If that's your aim, you're in community in a church so you can walk in utterly shattered because you haven't slept much over the weekend. And you hear brothers and sisters around you worshiping and it lifts your heart to make it about Jesus. If your aim is to be present yourself mature, you work on your character so that you're easy to approach and people can challenge you. Have you ever thought, I really want to help my brother and sister, but I know if I raise this with them, now we've got a responsibility to still do that. But man, wouldn't it be wonderful if we made ourselves people like, if that person feels they need to come and speak to me, it's going to be okay. Even if I disagree with them, I know that they feel they can come and speak to me and say it, and it's not going to be this big... We, 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 if that is our aim, so brothers and sisters, what is your aim to present yourself mature? And what are we doing about it? 
you have this contrast here between maturity and immaturity. Mature individuals forming a mature body. And just before we start to talk then about the activity, so, so that's where we're going. If you're part of Redeemer, that's what we're trying with all our faults and stuff, and that's what individuals are trying to do with each other. That's why we go life groups and midweek groups and deliberate community that's not always easy because we want to grow. Anyone want to grow? Who wants to be more peaceful, more joyful, more secure, more life-giving, more honoring of Jesus, more faithful with all they have? We want to grow Listen, you can probably grow to some extent by yourself. But the more that you're in the bump and grind of life with people who can speak the truth in love, the more you will grow. The more you have those relationships where people feel invited and have a sense of... We talked about discipleship in this church a lot. And what we really mean is that we want people, everybody, pursuing others to speak into their lives. And we want others pursuing people they can speak into their life. Now, often age is a factor in that, but not entirely. Spiritual maturity or experience. So if you're part of Redeemer, are you looking for people you think, can, can I have coffee with you? Can I have a tea with you? Can I have a pint with you? Whatever it might be. The activity doesn't matter. Can I, so that I want to invite you to speak into my life. So would, can we meet monthly? I want to work some things through with you. I want you to observe my life and speak into my life. Have you ever done that with someone? Why not? If you haven't. Or... If you feel you've got energy and time and capacity, taking responsibility for others, you watch out for people. You invite them over. You make time for them. And you say, hey, I'm, I'm here if you need me. Or you just speak wisdom into them and life into them. When I moved over from Zimbabwe, I used to spend uh, a lot of lunches after church with families uh, in, in our church. And I got parented and I got mothered and I got fathered in ways that when I look back now, I grew the most, I would say, or at least visibly so, probably because I was so immature and it didn't take much to see the difference um, at that time. Because people were doing this to me and not all of it had a label, but I do encourage you to say, who are the one, two, three people who you have asked to speak into your life. It can feel harder to do that the older you get. Because we get filled with pride and think, how can I ask someone younger to speak into my life? They all think I've got it together. If I open up this can, they might think less of me. All of that might happen, but still good for you. Yeah? Still good for you. So I encourage you to do that. But before we start talking about this activity that leads to this maturity, I want, to, I want you to hold a picture in your mind, it shouldn't be too hard to get this. What happens when you throw a group of infants onto a football field with a ball? <laughs> Chaos. They're all free, they're all liberated, but there's like a swarm of bees <laughs> all running after the ball. Anyone seen this? Yeah, everyone's seen this. Here's a little video as an example of it three professional Japanese footballers playing against 100 children. <laughs> You get the idea, right? Immaturity, they're playing a beautiful sport. There's a goal to the, to the sport, but immaturity means no one's thoroughly enjoying themselves. It's not particularly fruitful. The only people who come out at the top, really, are probably the most aggressive or the most physically able. Everyone else just gets lost. Now, they're all having fun, and it's fine. They're, they're kids. But what does every parent on the sideline who's ever done sport want to do? So I was watching my boy. He's in year two, go to a football tournament. Uh, well, he went to like a coaching session with some other schools on Wednesday, and they organized this game. And I'm grateful that they organized this game. But the coach, 
when he blew his whistle, you could hardly hear it, okay? And he's like, blue ball, when it was a sideline throw. And I'm like, these children are seven years old. They all rush for the ball, all try to pick the ball up, and the guy's just like laser fay, just like, oh, it's a blue throw in. Ten minutes later, a parent, I'm not sure which one, goes over and grabs the ball and says, it's your throw in, stand there, throw the ball in. I, I just couldn't help myself, you know? <laughs> um, now, I used, to be a, I used to be a primary school teacher and a PE coach. I'm like, these children will enjoy themselves so much more if someone with maturity told them, play on the left wing, play on the right wing, stay up front. The aim of this goal is to stop the ball going in there and is to go there, okay? Let me give you some direction. Let me coach you to play your part so that you actually enjoy to the fullest what is going on. On. Adults know that the unity of purpose requires a diversity of role. You can't all be a center forward. I'm sorry, children, okay? You can't always be the goal shooter, to make sure I introduce some of the kinds of sports in there, um, whatever it might be. Okay? For unity of purpose, we need a diversity of role. And it takes someone mature to stand on the sidelines someone with experience, and say, hey, let's do this. Let's find a role. And guess what? Everyone actually enjoys themselves more. Everyone is more involved. Uh, do you get the picture? You kind of know where we're going now. So if the aim is maturity, the activity that we see is each person playing their part as Christ decides. Can you say each one? Each one. If the person is dozing off next to you, give them an elbow and say each one. Okay. So if the activity is each part doing its work, let's look at the verses that speak to that. So verse 7, but to each one. Now, if you've been following, okay, a lot of what Tom spoke of last week, the first six verses are about the body, right? So we're not separating that now, but, but there's a change of gear here, and you're going from everyone and being united within a body like this. That doesn't mean we do everything with everyone. That's not what unity is. Unity is something sweeter, richer, deeper, as Tom shared last week. But now we're saying each one. So if you think this isn't for you, you're wrong. <laughs> I love it. it's, it's, it's helpful for a preacher when it says each one. You don't have to make people realize it applies to everyone in the room. This applies to you. Okay, so to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And to reinforce these things, if you need a reinforcement elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment, each, each, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So going back to the Ephesians verses that I read, you get the idea. So when you have an itch, on your left elbow, what happens? Sends a message to the head, right? And what does the head do? Barring the need for it, doesn't send a message to the big toe to scratch your left elbow. Now, if you're ambidextrous or whatever, good, good for you. But, but the head receives the message and it sends it to another member of the body to scratch it. Right? Everyone's feeling itchy now. Okay, don't. Right? If this part didn't play its role, I would just have an 
itch, right? Or another part of the body, which amazingly the body can do this, but for the sake of the illustration, would have to do something it's not made for. Or the person suffers and things come out of sync, you know? You mess up your muscles or whatever it is. Each member plays its role. And when a member doesn't, the head doesn't just say, don't itch anymore. Although there might be aspects of that. I don't want to get into the neuro. It sends a message to another member to deal with it, doesn't it? You get the idea. And so when the other members are not playing the part, there's a problem. There's not a fullness in it. The itch remains. Or you have to do something that's not the right shape to, to get there. So some things to note here. Each one. Going to talk about some specific roles in a little bit. But here Paul is clear that everyone has a role, a gift, or a grace to bring to the body. There are no passengers, consumers, or spectators in the body of Christ. No matter how limited you feel, no matter how unable to contribute and see in ways you feel, there is something about the way that God has made you and what he has given you, that means you have a part to play. And when you don't play that part, or you're absent, not present, the body is less well off as a result. So, when, so obviously, hey, everyone goes on holiday, don't they? But when people think that their presence, now this isn't just about presence, it's about playing a role. When people think their presence has no effect, we've all thought that, will anyone notice if I'm not there this week? Whether anyone notices or not, the body is less off for active participation. And then that's not a guilt thing to go on holiday. I go on holiday, okay? That's not, the, that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is don't dismiss the importance of you being actively part of a body. I heard a beautiful story last week. Father's Day, we gave out Yorkies. Dad's got Yorkies. Looks like everyone got Yorkies by the sounds of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, but someone gave a Yorkie to someone else who was not their biological father and who had just cared for them and nurtured them to say thank you for being something of a spiritual father to me. That person wasn't expecting it, but they were blown away from it, blown away by it. A little part of the body that no one else knows about played a little part that massively encouraged and strengthened someone else. That happens all the time. There'll be many stories there. That's what I look out for as one of kind of the, the shepherds here. I love what we see up front, public gifts, beautiful. But when I hear stories of the stuff that goes on in the pews and outside of the building, that's a beautiful thing because each part is playing its, playing its role in that. So each one. Now listen, you can choose to discount yourself. And this is important why the first part of this series is really weighty for us to be secure in who God has made us. I don't have to compare myself because if you look at the next bit, as Christ apportioned it, okay? So the gift that you have and the measure of that gift if it looks as great as someone else or seems as fruitful as someone else, it's not primarily down to you, although there is responsibility to steward our gifts. Christ apportions gifts as he decides. Okay? Now, it can feel easy because I'm do saying that and I have the most public role. I have the, the platform role. I'm the mouth of much of what's going on here. And we instinctively can think that is like, I don't know, fancy. And we can discount other things. None of that in the people of God. It says Christ apportions his gift, which means two things, I think. A lovely phrase, I think, for the Christian life is humble confidence. Can you say humble confidence? Man, we're humble because if God's not in it, we're wasting our time. And we're doing the wrong thing. And we, uh, but if we are being fruitful, we're humble because God has given us those gifts and graces, right? And so it's not about us primarily, but we're also confident, right? Because God's given it to us. 
So I'm not going to be apologetic for it. I'm not going to abdicate my responsibility. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't matter because it matters because I need to be able to scratch the elbow. No matter what it is, I'm humble, but man, I'm, I'm confident. God is not into faceless armies. You know, sometimes you hear this, don't you? You're like, hey, it's all about, Je- it's all about Jesus, but Jesus has given you a name and gifts. And when you read through the Bible, there's a lot of names in the Bible because it's important what you do, Right? It's really important what you do. In fact, you will be held accountable by, by God for how you steward what God gives you. And if you're faithful with it, he'll give you more. Parable of the talents, God gave this amount to this one, and he went and he used it, and God gave him more. This one, this amount, less, went and used it, God, this one, a little bit, and thought it wasn't important, and thought it was better just to keep it rather than use it. And Jesus comes back and says, wicked and lady serv- lazy servant. Try and unpack that one day, not today, when we go from there. So because Christ apportioned it, there's humble confidence, but there's also responsibility. You are responsible to play your part in the family of God as God apportions it. So whether that's encouragement, some of you have an amazing gift of encouragement, I think is one of the most underestimated gifts in the church. If you feel encouraged by someone, would you tell them? Please, giving serving, hospitality, administration, speaking gifts, tech and sound. I mean, look at James, multitasking today, visuals and sound. If you can do that, go and speak to him afterwards. Even if you come late and can help. Maybe that's one of your gifts. There's so many varied gifts in the church. And, 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 and it says that the body is built up, right? Not because you are present, but as each part does its work. Now, it's not just about the Sunday, okay? It's just, it's in the body of Christ as a whole, but this would be an expression of it. So whilst it's a responsibility, it's also a privilege. Can you say privilege with a smile? Privilege. privilege. Not privilege with a smile, just say privilege. <laughs> but do it with a, with a smile. I mean, each part does its work. So you have this beautiful picture of every member in ministry. You recall the image I asked you to hold, child swarming around, three senior pros easily defeating them, chaos, no direction. And I think this is why so many people get disillusioned with church. Because you come as, in many parts, you come as a spectator. There's not, you know, you might consume a bit and receive, but you don't end up playing a part. And you don't end up investing yourself. And investing yourself, you take ownership in the heart. For God says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you invest your time, put the treasure of your time, that's where your heart is. Where you put the treasure of your thoughts, that's where your heart is. Where you put the treasure of your money, that's where your heart is. In my pastoral experience, I can see the signs when people are withdrawing from church and then God. You think they're not investing and their hearts are not there. They're investing over here and their hearts are there. And I'm not talking about another church or whatever it is. I'm talking about other things in, in there. John Stott says, Here is incontrovertible evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, but as the privilege and calling of all people of the God of God. Hallelujah. It's a vibrant and wonderful picture of the church, every member in ministry. But I quickly want to mention, and we're not going to go into great dips in this, some of the other roles that God has spoken about here. So he says, Everyone has a gift, but to some, can you say some? Some people who seem to embody the gift or carry the gift, he's given to the church to help make sure that we're not all running around after the ball <laughs> on the pitch. Okay? So it says in verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, some people say that these gifts are no longer available in the church because Jesus has risen. 
the ascended Christ who had ascended then gave them. There's a clue in that. But also it says that he gave them until the church comes to maturity. Are you a mature church? No. Now, some people would say, obviously, what we have here is the mature doctrine of God, and they would split these things and say some of them do exist and some don't. We believe these gifts are still here today. The ascended Christ is still giving gifts because the church is far from perfect. And there is nowhere in Scripture it says that we should cease them. But notice, he who gave them. So while we've talked about each one, and we can say it's easy to be humble when we're each one, but these are named roles. But who gave them? He gave them. Just to make sure we have the humility and the understanding that God gives these roles. And he gave some, so not everyone, to prepare God's people. Leadership is to serve others. These leadership roles, okay? If you ever come across people who hold these or would say they hold these and they are not there to prepare people, to serve people, to release people, to become all that they have, something is wrong. That's what the gifts are given, to serve others, to do all that God has called them to do. So there are apostles. Can you say apostles? apostles. Now, um, how to briefly, but to do this justice, I think this would be a series. And so Clearly there were unique apostles, those who saw Jesus in the flesh. And some of them have given us some of what we have as scripture. But when you read through the New Testament, other people are referred to as apostles who didn't see the risen Lord Jesus. Okay? And it seems that, you know, the word apostle simply means sent one. So some people would say, we're all apostles. And there is some teaching now, actually, that says we all embody these gifts across the body of Christ. Clearly, these are not exclusive. So it's not that an apostle never has any prophetic or evangelistic grace, okay? There's obviously, because we're people of God, filled with the Spirit of God. We all prophesy, right? We all do the work of an evangelist. But some people are particularly graced and enabled by God, it seems, to particularly do it, but even more importantly, to prepare others to do things. This is not about one person parading what they do, right? It's primarily about them using their gift of what they do to serve others, to release others into fullness, right? So when you look at these ministries, you think, you're amazing platform ministry. Where's all the fruit of others doing this? Where are all the prophets that you're preparing? Where are all the apostles that you're releasing? Where are all the people who are robust in truth? That's so you can tell the fruit from it, okay? So apostles, these are people who seem to be particularly graced with laying foundations, you know, so outlining what God's called the church to, defining the people of God, I think is an important part of apostles. These are who the people of God are. This is what we hold to. They give a plumb line of ministry. Um, and then you have prophets. And I'm just mentioning these time. I understand we can go into these. I'm very happy if you have questions to come to us. Prophets, these are people who particularly seem to be able to hear and grasp God's heart for situations, sometimes have a sense of foreknowledge. They can see what God's, God's doing. Evangelists, there's very little New Testament evidence for quite what evangelists did. But clearly they proclaim the gospel and they see people saved. You know, I love doing fishing with other people because I, I, there's parts of it I can do. Then I can, like connecting with other people who are really good. Evangelists seem to be able to stand up and call people to repent and come to Jesus. And people, they've got a grace in that moment to reap and to bring people to the point of following Jesus. But also to release others to do the same, to enable us to do it as well. And then there's debate whether pastors and teachers is a separate thing or pastor teacher is one thing i probably err to pastor teacher because the primary way people pastor is by teaching 
You look at elders in the New Testament laying down the word of God. But if you like, if apostles set the trajectory and reach new places and prophets help them, we read in the beginning of Ephesians, apostles and prophets lay the foundation. Can evangelists come and see people saved? You then have pastors and teachers who do the week in, week out discipling and equipping and forming and shaping of people. So you have pastors and teachers. John Stott says, the New Testament never contemplates the grotesque situation in which the church commissions and authorizes people to exercise a ministry for which they lack both the divine call and divine equipment. What he's saying is you don't go to a seminary to get a qualification to become these things. He's saying God gifts you in these areas, and that would be true of all our gifts. Going to seminary and being trained is a good thing. And you should probably, in most cases, pursue training if you feel God's calling you to this. But it's not what makes you a pastor or an elder or an apostle or whatever these might be. Just aware of time and the heat. <laughs> I think we can, we can finish there. There's much more to say on that. But just to encourage us, the final thing I'll say, if the band would like to start coming up, is these gifts are given by the ascended Christ. Okay? So just think about the victorious risen Jesus. Now, these verses where it says, what does it mean he ascended on high and he led captives and he gave gifts to men? It's a reference to Psalm 68 verse 18. We have this picture of a triumphant king. And in the ancient world, triumphant kings would bring the spoil of their victories and they'll parade their enemies who they had captured through the city to proclaim their victory. And they would share the booty. They would share what they had won but clearly, there was also an adoration and a giving to them as well. But what you have here is you have the ascended Jesus who has defeated sin and death, and we've been singing about it, and he shares the spoils of his victory. These are the spoils of Jesus' victory. It's not just God being nice. This is the victorious, risen Lord Jesus, and the way of saying, I've won and I've defeated is look at the church. The church is going to become beautiful. I give you this for the church to flourish. You think the church has been given gifts and these instructions to flourish by the resurrected king. It's a sign of victory, which means we have a beautiful starting point, doesn't it? To go on. And then just as a last mention, some of you need, this is the one question you've been, what does it mean that he descended? Okay. It doesn't mean that he went into hell and had a battle. Okay. That's what some people think. So there's a few perspectives on this. It says when he descended, people think that when he was in the tomb, Jesus went into what would be called Sheol and freed the captives, saints from the Old Testament. One Peter seems to reference that. Others would say, and this is where I lean, although I can see both ways, is that really it's referring to the kind of the incarnation of Jesus when he came down from heaven. Okay, so when you reference Psalm 68 and you think about this is him ascending, but he descended in humility, didn't he? And he came and he laid his life down, and it was because of that then he ascended as the victorious one. So when it means he descended, I think it's talking about when he took on flesh and came to the earth and made himself humble. Others would say, I, I, I don't think it's something to fight over. <laughs> you know, others would say he, he went into hell and released the saints of the old. Um, and others would say it was the coming down of the Holy Spirit. I, I think the incarnation is the best fit there. So can we stand together? Quite soon you'll be able to raise your hands for worship. Um, and I'd love us to, to pray. And I want to encourage you, just a few, few questions. What, what, what can you do to more grow into maturity? Who can you invite to help you? Right? Um, secondly, are you using your gifts? If you're not sure what they are, inviting someone to help you is part of that. Okay? Inviting someone to help you find your role. And uh, we did a preach about that earlier in this series. And I would say, throw yourself 
into things and find out where you're fruitful. Not where it's easy, different thing, but where you're fruitful. So let's just pray and then we'll worship Jesus. Lord, thank you that there is an invitation to be mature, steadfast, secure, stable, not tossed about to and fro, not racked with insecurity and worry and wondering what's what. We thank you. And I pray right now for the filling of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that the knowledge of God would fill us through revelation. And I pray for men and women who have been hurt, using their gifts to go again, who are not sure what their gifts are, that you'd whisper to them. I pray that we'd be a church who, with humble confidence, embrace the privilege and responsibility of using our gifts and filling everywhere with the knowledge of the glory of God. And I do pray you would raise up, even amongst us, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for the expansion of your kingdom and the glory of God. And all people said, Amen. Amen.